Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to the Market Maker Podcast, hosted by me, Anthony Chung, where every Friday I talk to a member of the team about what happened in markets this week. From macro themes and single stock news to cryptocurrencies and careers in finance, our aim is simple, to make finance interesting and easy to understand for everyone. So let's get to it. Okay, it's Friday, 24th of September, and joined as ever by Head of Trading, Piers Curran, to talk through some of the major themes of the week. So on the agenda is Evergrande, the the never-ending saga, it seems. It's definitely been the most dominant theme in markets, and we'll get you up to speed in exactly what's been going on there. Interestingly, the equity markets in the US, if you're looking at the S&P, you could look at that and think, what problem? because we're trading exactly where we were before the entire sell-off that started late last week and really hit peak peak contagion fear on Monday. Uh, and all of that's been taken back, but we'll explain a little bit why and some of the important factors going forward. We'll also talk about the Fed meeting happened midweek, what happened, and also the Bank of England meeting, which happened yesterday on Thursday. Um, but before that, Piers, how's it going? How's your week? It's going well. I've done something this week that I've never done before kind of got strong armed into it much to my reluctance but i i've i've been doing a detox mm. where i've had to cut out i mean not this is a voluntary thing um but i've been cutting out dairy alcohol gluten it's this thing my wife's been doing and i thought all right i'll try it out um and i've never felt worse i'm 4 days in and it's just making oh, me it's just Withdrawal symptoms, though. Well, maybe. You've got to go through that first. Uh, no might... caffeine. I cut caffeine out as well. So alcohol, caffeine, dairy, gluten. It's basically just water is pretty much all I can just, have. Just eating air, <laughs> drinking <Yeah>. water. 
So I'm not sure if any of the listeners have done anything like this, but yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not feeling the benefits yet. I'm four days in. It's supposed to be 10 days, but I can see myself caving over the weekend. It's funny you should say that because I watched a documentary on Netflix and I'm so cynical of Netflix these days because I do feel that they, they definitely push a political angle with their content. But there was a good yeah. program they had on about vegans. Right. And it was talking about um, genuine Olympic athletes who are vegan. Oh, yeah. and, and during their, um, their training, they had been performing for a number of years at a Olympic level, and then they turned vegan. And there's vegans out there like Novak Djokovic, uh, yeah. Hamilton, you know, top of the sport. And they were doing these scientific studies. And actually, the improvements are mind-blowing because well, there's that... this misconception about protein and meats, and it's how you know, biochemically your body reacts to these things. And yeah, super interesting, actually. Well, that's where Djokovic claims he really turned the corner to becoming a, a kind of multi, multi, multi Grand Slam winner because he the Serbian diet's very, very bread heavy. It's very gluten heavy. And he finally figured this out. So he cut it out and basically just eats sushi, I think, or any, well, vegan, whatever. But he, he claims that diet switch was, was the moment that, that allowed him to start dominating. So I wonder, I wonder if there's a diet to switch personalities. Well, look, I, obviously I'm doing, I'm doing the, well, you mean, well, the, the U S crowd, the U S crowd he, love him now, right? Well, you Start know, crying on court. Maybe I mean, that's what you've got to do to get people to on your side, right? Just show a bit of vulnerability when you're that amazing. You know, it's easy yeah. to dislike someone. And again, I was watching the Schumacher documentary the other day. Wow. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. Amazing. I mean, definitely I'd, I remember watching Schumacher a lot as a child, but yeah, never really going into it in that detail. And he yeah, has such a unique character, actually. So laser focused. It's unreal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so my, yeah, so my, my detox, I'm not quite sure what I'm trying to become elite at <laughs> via this detox. Yes, there's something you want to tell me. <laughs> ultra, ultra Iron Man. I've got yeah. you down for. Yeah. So... <laughs> Yes. Anyway, what about you? What what what's the plans? Weekend plans? Yeah. Um. Saturday night. Yeah. Guess what I'm doing Saturday night. How how the tables have turned. I'm no longer um doing what probably most listeners will be doing on a Saturday night. Uh, I'll be working. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. And so no, super interesting event actually. So I'm running an event at something called Traders at MIT. MIT being in the US, uh, the kind of infamous uh, university, if you like, and they are hosting the largest intercollegiate trading competition for quant trading and finance in the United States. And cool. uh, well, they've asked Mary Old Me to, to come <laughs> along and uh, run one of the sessions for them on behalf of none other than Citadel. Nice. So, yeah. All right. So that. rubbing shoulders with the big boys. Yeah, sat Saturday night, nine. Like, yeah, your usual Saturday night. Right? That's it. Yeah, no longer DJing. I am mixing it up for a, a masterclass in in all things macro. So yeah, should be good. Um, but look, let's get let's get straight into it, and let's talk yep. about the main story of the week. Undoubtedly, has been Evergrande. We, as I described earlier, we've gone through a bit of an episode of really um, fears about a lack of, I guess, transparency to a certain degree about the contagion effect on what could be exposure to 
other meaningful financial institutions? And then could that then have an impact on the wider marketplace outside of China? Um, and so to kick things off, one thing we have had is kind of EU bankers, if you like, have been out in force trying to just alleviate some of that tension, whether it be for regulatory authorities, for investors. So Credit Suisse, UBS, Deutsche Bank, they've all come out and kind of said in the, in the last few days, exposure is immaterial. Uh, earlier in the week, Citi said no direct lending exposure. JP, Bank of America have also no such links, according to people familiar with the matter. Uh, one bank that did come up though is HSBC, obviously has a lot of interest in that region. Uh, their asset management arm has been among one of the larger holders of Evergrande debt, but they said themselves there's no material exposure on its own balance sheet, although there is some through their client portfolios. And they were talking about second, third order kind of exposure. But I think that's been definitely a, a, a real reason, partly for the turnaround. But the other thing has been, and something I'd like to get a bit more insight from, from you, is the Chinese Central Bank. PBOC, they've injected um, 460 billion yuan, so it's just over 70 billion US dollars of short-term cash into the banking system over the past five working days in order to counteract any fears about contagion and its impacts affecting uh, market liquidity. I heard a really good quote uh, from someone, like a talking head, and he said, the interbank funding stability is key to ensure the financial plumbing of the markets remains intact. So what's this person talking about when they talk about the, the interbank market and plumbing? What's yeah. the connection with that? Well, you know, the last thing you want is your toilet being blocked, right? So this is basically, I mean, this is, yeah, I mean, the best sort of example is go back to the financial crisis in 2008. And I don't know if people remember or anyway, there's been different names for that crisis, right? The great financial crisis or, but anyway, the first one was the credit crunch. That's what we used to call it to begin with. And this is because really, well, credit got crunched. I mean, this interbank lending market is so critical for the day-to-day -day functioning of the financial system, the day-to-day -day functioning more than that, the day-to-day -day functioning of the economy. Um, so basically the way, I'm going to simplify it here a little bit, but basically the way it works, if a company, the way a company operates, right? Well, they need cash flow. They need cash on hand every day. Okay. And they might be paying suppliers. They might be paying, it might be the time of the month where they're paying salaries. They might be paying utility bills, whatever, right? They've got stuff that needs paying and without making those payments, they can't operate. Now, often a lot of companies will have an overdraft facility and this helps them to manage this cash flow situation where some months they might be cash flow negative and they can still operate by using their overdraft facility. They can still pay salaries. They can still pay their suppliers. And you know, if you've got a seasonal business, then these, these overdraft facilities are absolutely critical for you to function on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, Think about a bank then. Well, if a bank has given you an overdraft, well, that basically is a loan that's prearranged that you, the company, can draw down at any moment in time. Okay. So the bank needs to think, well, hang on, that company could draw down at any moment. So I need to have cash myself, the bank, to be able to fund any drawdown at any moment. Okay. But banks themselves, they'll go through 
cycles, ups and downs in terms of liquidity. So how much, essentially, let's just simplify, how much cash have they got available for their customers to pull out of a cash point to draw down on a loan? And, and that, that cash amount is, is, is going up and down. And sometimes it'll be going down and they don't, let's just say simply, they don't have enough ready cash to um, supply their customers on a day-to-day basis. So here they use the interbank market. So really they're borrowing cash on a short term, mostly overnight. Okay. So we talk about overnight lending. And this is normally so that there's money sloshing around the interbank market so that there's enough cash at all the banks at all times. Okay. Now there's a cost to borrow overnight. And it's super low normally, right? The co- that, that, that interest payment is super, super low. And this may, means liquidity is freely flowing and there's cash sloshing around for everyone, okay? Now, when you start getting a bit of a panic, so Evergrande, for example, and right, hang on, how many banks, let's just say one bank has got a particularly large exposure to Evergrande and all the other banks know that. So when that bank knocks on the door and goes, look, can I borrow overnight, please, as we normally do, they might say, well, no because we're worried actually you're not going to pay us back tomorrow. Or they might say, well, yes, but we're going to dramatically increase the rate at which that overnight lending transaction is going to take place. Yeah, so I remember during the financial crisis, you remember being on the other side of the squawk and trading at, um, at that time, but it used to be the main uh, situation of the day, if you like, from a market moving perspective, was the LIBOR fixing, right? which is the London Interbank kind of market where they'd fix a rate daily and it used to be around 11.45. And I remember this was post Lehman's collapse and it would be, you'd have these primary dealers and it would be whoever is slightly out of kilter, it wouldn't require factual news. People yeah. would say it's Barclays. Right. And all of a sudden Barclays shares would get hammered. Yeah. And then that would become self-fulfilling then. There'd be rumors going around and then the next day, no one's lending to Barclays and then and then rates are going up and yeah, consequent, hence the, the credit crunch at the time. It was such a, that was such a peculiar time. That was like the biggest thing. That was the big measure, wasn't it? Of, of and, and drove sentiment across the globe, actually, that one kind of figure. So, so what happens is then that, that that bank that can no longer access money has got a real problem. Um, and, and here they have to start doing things like, right, cancel all overdraft facilities. So all these companies that got overdrafts that they can tap into, sorry, they're gone. So this is what happened in 2008. So actually companies, even healthy companies, were all of a sudden left with a massive um, cash flow crisis, which meant they had to cut production or they had to lay off a portion of their workforce. And, and this kind of led to this spiraling effect. And so this is that contagion risk and it, it kind of snowballs and it snowballs. And the financial sector is the most important with regards to the day-to-day functioning um, of the whole economy. So that's why they call it that, that kind of plumbing thing. Now, so when this, when this is happening, the central bank or the government can come in and temporarily inject cash into that market to improve the liquidity levels and to lower, therefore, the overnight um, lending rates. And it's like an emergency kind of, cash lending to, to, to make sure banks have got enough cash to operate so that it doesn't spill over into the wider economy. And it doesn't, pr- it doesn't mean banks have to pull their overdraft facilities and all the rest of it. I was just trying to find, just while you were talking, I can't remember. I think it was RBS at the time. 
which was obviously my assets, the largest bank, if you can believe, I, I don't think young people would believe this <laughs> because on that same measure, I'm not sure if RBS even cuts the top 30 these days, but yeah. RBS was the biggest bank on the planet. Biggest one. At that time, 2008. Yeah. And I think the shortfall that they had was something like 200 billion and right. that required the Bank of England to come in and basically backstop that figure in order for it to function, i.e., it's systemically it's systemic failure would break the system at the time given the scope yeah. and magnitude of the firm and so this is why everyone's worried about evergrand right it's because the financial sector's got such a large exposure to it that they're worried it will set in motion a series of domino effects that will result in a big credit crunch like we had in 2008 however when so you mentioned at the start of this all those european banks coming out and saying look we don't have a, you know any meaningful exposure you know the 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 international banking system i'm not saying china here i'm saying the international banking system is in a way better place now than it was back in 2008 and you know reserve requirement ratios are super high these banks are much better um placed and, and a good example of that is archigos the incident earlier this year, Credit Suisse lost $5 billion over that, and it's fine. You know, we'll just, just move on. Yeah, sure, their share price tanked and it halved, but it's actually, that, you know, a few months later, it's back to where it was. So, I mean, it's, um, you know, banks have got a huge amount of uh, capital reserves to deal with any one of these exposures these days. Yeah, and from a behavioral point of view, because that's the other thing, is that really drove that that move. I remember in 08, 09, when that selling was so ferocious, was because of a lack of transparency. So not yeah. only was there a real sense of no capital buffer to protect these financial firms themselves internally, just the fear of we had zero information. Whereas now, not only with the regulatory requirements that these banks hold and must submit and be clear upon, but you certainly didn't have companies coming out saying, oh, yeah, we don't have any subprime. The reason why? Because they all were getting their, their fingers in those pies because it was right. very profitable at the time. <laughs> um, I mean, talking yeah. about transparency, though, if we zoom back into Evergrande um, specifically, to, I mean, talk about a lack of transparency. Obviously, they're on the ropes. So they had this, well, they were supposed to have paid um, an 85 um billion dollar um no sorry 85 million apologies not sorry 84 million apologies hang on so an 84 million um offshore coupon payment this is one of their dollar bonds so this was due like uh, a few hours ago actually i think actually officially it was 5 a.m was the deadline 5 a.m london time was the deadline for this for them to pay this 84 million and, and as uh, I, I can't find anything at the moment but it doesn't look like they've paid it um so people who hold that bond are saying that no, we haven't received anything now that doesn't mean by the way that bang default today because there, there's a grace period with these things so there's actually a 30-day grace period before any you know failure to pay officially results in a default um but there's a huge amount of lack of transparency and there was a there was um a domestic bond um uh, payment that they had on tuesday that they failed to pay but you know, you've had some of what, what was quite insightful um, is that you've had the likes of Hong Kong developer 
uh, Chinese estate holdings, which is the second largest shareholder in Evergrande. They're now selling their entire 6.5% stake in the business. I mean, they're going to get virtually nothing back. They're obviously going to take a monstrous loss there. What was perhaps a bit more interesting was the municipal government in central Anhui province um, announced that it was reclaiming a plot of land on which Evergrande had missed payments. So so clearly the, the wheels are in motion now in the which we knew, right, that, that kind of Evergrande are falling on their sword. Their statement was that this is Evergrande now was saying, look, the market is almost frozen, as in property sales markets. I think it's down 60% year on year in terms of home sales. And they said the radical change in policy and environment has seriously disrupted our business and made it very difficult to maintain normal operations. Duh. But the problem they've got is, Yes, property sales are down 60%, but are they going to recover? (laughs) Absolutely not. And actually, they're going to get worse. If you were a Chinese person now, eyeing up buying a a flat off plan, would you now buy it? No way. So the, the sales are going to carry on collapsing, and that's the problem. And that then drags in other players in the sector, you know, and that's that you know, one of the contagion effects. And so the government needs to make sure they're going to break that that connection between the property sector, the property developers, and the Chinese financial sector. Yeah, from a market reaction point of view, one of the other things that helped promote some positive risk sentiment midweek was they had also called in the restructurers, yeah. which was a sign of, oh, okay, we're going we're gonna to find a solution and fix this rather than, Worst case scenario. So there was that also in the mix. But look, let's move on. Let's talk about the yep. Fed. Um, so midweek, uh, just to get you up to speed, everyone was kind of awaiting for this. Quite sensitive, of course, to uh, the the word taper and all the timings and composition of how that's going to work in the future. And Powell said the central bank could begin scaling back asset purchases in November. November being the next meeting and complete the process. So he did give a timeline, and this was actually quite meaningful in the intraday market at the time. And and the perception then was actually a quite hawkish one, albeit that move was reversed later, um, to complete the process by mid-2022, because there was a bit of a broad range on the street between were they going to do tapering, which is the incremental kind of winding down of the monthly volume of bond purchases they're doing, Six months or 12 months, six months being accelerated, tightening policy effectively faster, so more hawkish. Markets might not like that, might be a bit sensitive to normalizing that quickly, and the opposite for 12 months. And they kind of landed somewhere in the middle, which I guess kind of explains to a degree of why the actual end reaction has been fairly tame. The other things, officials published their quarterly projections. So this is where Piers and I have talked in previous podcasts about the infamous dot plots and whether or not how useful they are is is debatable. But nonetheless, they changed. They were expected to change because the economy has obviously evolved over the last three months since the previous projections in June. And so officials are now evenly split. Nine, nine. There's 18 of these people on the FOMC. And it was 9-9 on whether or not it should be appropriate to raise the federal funds rate as soon as next year. And actually, you remember back in June, Pierce, it was the shock of they're not just going to hike once in 2023, they're going to do twice. And now that number's gone up to three. 
and also now it's evenly split for 2022. So you can see how the, the timeline shifted. The rate forecasting has become a little bit nearer uh, now is the general conclusion of that. One thing that Powell was very explicit to do, which was again, very expected, was to try and decouple this idea and notion that in any way that tapering is associated with rate hiking, they're separate. Uh, and so he went to great means to try and push that point as well. But anything out of that, that that caught your eye or you thought was interesting, or was it as per the market reaction fairly? I mean, equities, it had really no real sustained reactions of, of, of much. However, I must, I must stress that some of the equity sectors that moved yesterday were the economically sensitive ones. So energy, financials actually rallied and outperformed quite aggressively yesterday oil is trading now continues i mean we were down 62 yeah. months ago yeah. we're now we're now hitting 74 this morning so you know what pandemic <laughs> as, yeah. far as, as far as that is concerned but yields have continued to move so the one instrument or asset class which definitely has had more of a reaction consistently to what the fed have done has been has been the, the rates market uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, um, I think there was a marginal hawkish slant to that comment where, oh God, hang on, they might finish the tapering process by the middle of next year. Okay, wow, that's super fast, right, compared to tapering programs in the past. Um, so I think that caught people a little bit by surprise, but they've definitely left it open enough that you know that that speed of tapering obviously can change as they're going along and they'll be very clear and stressing that in november's meeting when they start tapering they're going to be super clear about you know the speed at which we taper can increase or decrease you know in response to changing economic conditions but so whether it ends up being middle of next year or not or the end of next year or in the middle i don't, I don't know but um so I think other than that very slight uh, hawkish supply, surprise, I think generally speaking, it's going as we thought. And as we've been talking about, I think, you know, and, 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 and quite rightly, I think, you know, I think that ultimately that inflation, tra transitory inflation being not quite as transitory as we thought, um, warrants a, a little bit more of a, uh, an accelerated tightening process um, as long as COVID doesn't derail that kind of economic momentum. One thing I've heard you and the chief economist at UBS, Paul Donovan, say, and I know you two are buds, is <laughs> why rush to conclude the taper by mid next year? And this idea that one reason may be the expectation of growing disinflationary forces in the US next year, base effects, deflation in some of the sectors that had strong inflation this year likely to create some downward pressure on prices so could that be rationale why to just get that done now um so i was talking about this the other week because and finally it's coming to the fore that's people now looking beyond this transitory inflation spike and actually thinking hang on there's going to be maybe an equally an opposite you know sort of disinflation again for 
transitory reasons. But by the time we get to the spring of 2022, that's when prices started spiking, right? It, sorry, spring of 2021, prices started spiking. So when we get to the spring of 2022 and you start compare prices, you know, year on year, you may well then get a drop in inflation. I don't quite get this UBS angle, though. They're saying because inflation's going to drop, the Fed should stop QE early. That doesn't, I, I don't think that quite makes sense. I mean, QE is inflationary. So if you think inflation's now going to be too low, well, shouldn't actually you prolong QE? Or, or maybe they just want to get, or may, maybe the UBS kind of angle is, the Fed just want to get this thing done and finished so that when inflation drops, they don't have to, they don't get strong-armed into continuing QE because, look, guys, inflation's too low now. So maybe that's the angle. They want to finish the QE program before inflation drops so that they, maybe that's it. I, I don't know. But I definitely think as we go into Q2, 2022, and Q3, we're going to be talking about the opposite. We're going to be talking about, hang on, inflation's too low now. Um, but again, it'll be transitory. Yeah, and then moving on to the Bank of England, one of the things that, that has been echoed across the three major central banks, Christine Lagarde, speaking to CNBC overnight, said that the drivers of the recent spike in Eurozone inflation are temporary and due to fade in the next year. The Fed projections on inflation, PCE, showed an upward, quite aggressive revision to the near-term 21 inflation and then straight back down as they previously had forecasted in 2022-23. And then the Bank of England then yesterday raised the prospects of a rate hike perhaps sooner than people had expected. Rates still at record low levels. After we've had a surge in the August CPI reading, they've now moved that needle as well in a similar kind of fashion. It's a little bit more potent now. It's still going to drop off, though. But they said inflation, CPI this is, could exceed 4%. Before it was kind of a 4% marker. Now it's exceeding 4% with a spike in energy prices um so yeah most policymakers agree to future tightening at the boe they said should first start with a rate increase even if that came before the bond purchase program expires by the end of the year so they've got yeah. a slightly different sequence here than yeah. what we're kind of accustomed to with the precedence of the of the fed um any thoughts on that i think that I think the way this is playing out where well, you're suddenly starting to get a little bit of divergence between the central banks in terms of their strategy. And that's a, a, a function of just how uncertain the inflationary outlook is, you know, over the next 12 to, to 24 months, let's just say. And it's so, it's so difficult, if not impossible, to predict. And so it'll be interesting if banks do slightly diverge and actually go, if, let's say, the Bank of England do go ahead and start hiking early doors starting next year. Um, it'll be interesting to see which bank ends up being the right one in terms of their strategy, but it may be the Bank of England do a one hike back to 0.25%, um, which was kind of their, or maybe even to 0.5%. 0.5 for them is almost like that was their financial crisis floor in 2008. They went to 0.5. And I don't think they like being below 0.5. So maybe they want to just get back up to 0.5 and they might just sit there for a bit and see how that kind of plays out. So it might not be the start of a rate hiking cycle 
from the Bank of England. It's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah. So um, the, in terms of market pricing, it's now for a 15 basis point rate increase in February compared to May before this, yeah. this week's meeting. The pound rallied on the day yesterday, nearly a percent. 10-year gilt yields rose by the most in a week yesterday. So yeah. for, for me, though, rate hike in February. No, I, can't, I cannot see that. I can't see that happening. I just think the market has... Uh, we see this so often. It's kind of you give, a, you give an inch, the market positions itself a mile. It feels... <laughs> it's almost like, it's like Monday, Evergrande. Yeah. I just sell it off worst worst stock performance we've had in the three major US indices declining for all three more than one and a half percent first time since April, I think yeah. it was. And it's like, oh my goodness, this is it. And then all of a sudden Friday, we're back to where we were. You know, yeah. Keep These calm, are the short-term behavioral, the short-term behavioral ebbs and flows. So a couple oh. of points here, a couple of points. And yeah. then um I I I good to get your take on these as well. So one furlough yes ends next week right so there's one and a half million people still on yeah. furlough and so what we have seen in economic data in western developed markets the us included in the uk as well is that the economy's slowing from we've had that peak we talked about this before peak recovery data so it's growing but it's not growing it's starting to slow down a little bit so got furlough going into a period when the economy is is slowing a little bit in pace second one uh, i heard analysts at ing talking about was welfare benefits yeah there's a 20 pound a week uplift in universal credit will end in a couple of weeks as well and so um, national insurance or well, we have already heard we've heard that it's going to be hiked so paid by employers and firms that's going to be hiked from next april as well, which is around the timing of when the markets are pricing in this hike. And so the effect is likely to be something of a cost of living spike in the winter, particularly for lower earners who are disproportionately affected by the universal credit cut. But also we've now got a gas price crisis, energy bills are going through the roof, goods bills are more expensive, supply disruptions to food supply over Christmas as well. So all of that makes up a larger share of the spending, particularly for a lot of people who might well find themselves unemployed. And we've not even mentioned COVID as we go into yeah. winter with booster shots with our very accelerated rollout now fading in their efficacy. And you're telling me we're going to hike in February. I can't see it happening. I'm not saying just these. You're looking for a pretty much, I feel like the markets are priced for perfection here in terms of a, an economic narrative for them to execute on a February hike one little modicum of questioning of that, I think the market could could turn quite aggressively. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear you. I hear your concerns. I mean, I think I think this is why it, it's so intertwined, right? COVID and all of these factors. Basically, we need a full unlocking to be maintained and not only a full unlocking, but people confident to get out there and behave normally across the entire country. If that happens, then the furlough scheme ending next week will be fine because everyone goes back to their job and there is actually that the company they work for has activity and sales and, and customers enough that, that warrants 
these people working, right? I mean, I know somebody who she works, um, she used to work three days a week as an accountant. And then she got furloughed. Um, she's been on one day a week for the last, so she's been, can't, oh no, hang on. She's still on furlough, apologies. So she's been on furlough since March, 2020. And she's about to go back to work next week, end of next wow. week. And so, you know, it, this is quite a big thing, one and a half million people, but it's fine as long as the COVID thing, you know, if we get another lockdown, then obviously everything, all bets are off and rate hike in February, no chance. But, you know, but if COVID is fine and if the vaccine rollout and, and if the booster jabs get rolled out, then fine, 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 right? I think on the inflation side, that that energy price crisis we're having gas prices spiking unfortunately for the bank of england fine that's going to push inflation up right but unfortunately people have to heat their house in winter and so even though the prices of gas goes up they're not going to stop buying gas and what will happen is though they'll have less money to spend on everything else and so it will have a whilst the, whilst it's almost like the worst of both worlds interest rates are going up so the cost of borrowing is increasing, but you have to buy gas. So, you know, something's got to give and it'll be spending out on the high street, for, for example, maybe, or, you know, or the hospitality sector will get hit again. Or So, yeah, it depends. And, and I think for the Bank of England, it's particularly, um, particularly tricky. But yeah, obviously, like it's been throughout this entire period, it's all on COVID. That in the end, does the COVID situation require further lockdowns if so fine we've got to change our entire outlook if not well then actually we're, we're kind of chugging along and yeah who knows the bank of england may want to go early and we'll we'll see we'll see how that plays out time will be the measure okay cool and with that we'll we'll look to wrap up this particular episode so thank you everyone for for joining us as usual if you enjoyed the episode please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share The Market Maker with a friend. Help us get the word out to as many people as possible. That would be hugely appreciated by myself and all the team. Uh, but Piers, have a, have a great weekend and, and next week. Well, I'm not it's, here, you're going to have to go. Well, it's going to be you and Eddie, I'm a, I guess. Yeah, you, you've, got, you've got no idea what's going to happen. You're, you're going to regret going away. That's all I'm saying. Guys, look, look out for next week. It's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be big. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.